The following Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, February 27, 2023. The woman in your life will do what she must do to comfort you and calm you down and let you rest now. The woman in your life, she can rest so easily. She does everything you do because the woman in your life is you. Faces, my name is Elaine B. Holtz, and I'm your host. And with me at the board is my friend, my partner, my engineer, and co-producer, Ken Norton. And Ken is in the other room setting up all the different files and... This has really been an exciting moment, and I'm really excited. I just hope everything goes well with the show today. I'm excited with me on the phone. Uh, I will be talking with Ken. Oh, here, Ken. Ken, Ken, good morning, Ken. I thought I said good morning. Oh, you did Good morning. (laughs) Hey, listen, we're alive and well here at KBBF here in 89.1 FM, Calistoga, Santa Rosa. And like I said, the, the show is off the air, but we are streaming and I'm grateful for that. And I'm really excited. Uh, joining me on the phone this morning will be Catherine Weeks. Uh, Catherine uh, Meeks is a Ph.D. Uh, she's a 2022 recipient of the President Joseph R. Borden, uh, excuse me, Biden Lifetime Achievement Award for Service uh, as an executive director of the uh, Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing. I love it. You know, I was reading this paper this morning, and here in Sonoma County, we're still having some issues around racism, and I think it's really important to hear what Catherine Meeks has to say. She's a sought-after teacher and workshop leader. She brings four decades of experience to the work of transforming and dismantling uh, racism work in Atlanta. Uh, We're going to be talking about her latest book, and I mean, just amazing. The, uh, The night is long, but light comes in the morning. Uh, she And also she co-authored a book, uh, Passionate for Justice, uh, the story of I-B- Ida B. Wells as a prophet of our time. Wow, you know, everything has just been affecting me lately. You know, the, the weather, you know, the, the, the insecurities, the wars, the racism, everything that's going on. I mean, it's just, it's, it almost feels like, like the world is coming apart at the same time it's coming together. You know, I was on a I was on a seminar the other day about uh, some of the propaganda that's going on in our news and how important it is to support your community radio stations and your small publications in your area. I mean, we we're not getting as much information or, or as much truth as we need to have. You know, and I, I was really I was really very shocked at some of the things that I've been reading at the paper, especially this month. You know, this month is Black History Month, and it recognizes and honors important people and events in the history of, of African-American history. You know, it, it started in 1926 when historian Carter G. Woodson uh, originated the idea of a Negro History Week. You know, it's just like it's like women's history. It's like when we don't know our history, we don't know where we've come from. We don't know what some of the mistakes we made or some of the pluses or minuses. You know, history is really important, you know, and, and especially with black Americans. I mean, it's amazing when you start looking at some of, they had a whole show just on the inventions that were made. 
you know, the contributions that people make and, and how racism and all this idea of a different color means a different kind of person. We're just part of the human race. And I don't understand why we don't get that in, that in our heads, that we are just one people. You know, we call ourselves a Christian nation. We have on our money one nation under God. Well, as far as I'm concerned and everything that I have been taught is that we are all God's children. We're all made in God's image. So why are we not getting along? Why is this division and this separation? I mean, it's beyond me. It really is. It is beyond me. Well, the patrician, the tradition of what became Black History Month greatly influenced the expansion of academic scholarship and the corresponding recognition of the rich history of African-American people. And I am really grateful that I live in a time where I have access to all this history. Not only women's history, but black history, Hispanic history, uh, Chinese history, I mean, all these different different histories that are part of our country that make up America. It, it just It's just amazing to me. Well, here's an interesting thing that happened. Today is February 27th, and a woman that was born February 27th, happy birthday in 1897, and made her transition in 1993, was Marian Anderson. She was an opera singer and the first African-American member of the New York Metropolitan Opera in 1955. You know, it's very, very interesting that there was a... a uh, some sort of event that was happening, and they wanted Marianne um, uh, Anderson to sing. And of all people, of all groups, the Daughters of the American Revolution said, no, this woman will not stand in front of the Lincoln Monument and will not sing. But Eleanor Roosevelt came forward. So I want to read this to you. This is a very, very interesting part of history and very important to understand. Why is it important to understand? Because I keep thinking of, of Shirley Chisholm, which she said, you know, about, about how difficult it is to be a woman, but then add that to being a black woman. It, it, it's like two, two struggles. I mean, being a woman that's one thing. Being a black woman is another thing. And I'm sure that Marianne, uh, Marianne Anderson felt the same way. Let me just tell you a little bit about her. She's a contralto, an international singer that triumphed over racial prejudice and became an inspiration for American civil rights movement. Born in 1897, the granddaughter of enslaved Americans, Anderson, Anderson uh, earned international acclaim in you in europe by 1935 still in 1930 uh america anderson was discriminated against and denied a performance at the daughters of the american revolutions dar constitution hall in 1939 the daughters of the american revolution and actually what's so interesting is we would have never won the revolution if it were not for the French coming in and helping us, and if it wasn't for all these different black people, black men that signed up in the army to to fight to see to give us a free land. It's just it's just stunning to me. Anderson's iconic 1939 a concert. Uh, let's put first uh, lady Eleanor Roosevelt resigned from the Daughters of the American Revolution and an integrated team of activists from the NAACP to Howard University joined Secretary of the Interior Henry Ix and others to challenge the Jim Crow laws and ideology of this country. 
Anderson's iconic 1939 concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial was delivered to an unprecedented, unprecedented mixed-race audience of over 75,000 people. It was featured on newsreels and heard on radio by millions around the world. Inspired, a 10-year-old Martin Luther King listened to the radio and at 15, at 15 years old, delivered and published a winning uh, oratorial citing the experience. It's amazing <laughs> to think that here was Martin Luther King. It shows how important the media is. Look how he was influenced by this woman being able to, to sing in front of the Lincoln Memorial. It's just amazing. It was just amazing. Well, you know, another thing happened that was very interesting on February 22nd, 27th, 1922. The I didn't even know this. You know, I, I had no idea that there was actually a challenge to the 19th Amendment. On February 27th, 1922, the Supreme Court unanimously dismissed a challenge to the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which declares that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. The female suffrage amendment was a result of 70 years' worth of petitions, meeting, and protest. So here we had the 19th Amendment. They, we, we got it. We won it by one vote when it uh, was in the Senate, and they voted on it. And here the, it was challenged. So it was not really ratified until uh, February 27th, uh, 1922. And I have to find out. I wonder, I wonder when we actually had to go, to, when we actually, women could actually go to the polls and uh, and vote. I always thought it was 1920, but here it was. It was challenged. So I'm wondering. You know, I, I was trying to look up some history, and I I didn't find the information I wanted. But I will have it next week, because next week is women's uh, begins Women's History Month, and I'm really really excited about that. Well, you know, you know, since it is Black History Month, you know, and we're looking at here on February 27th, they finally said yes, women can vote. It did not mean all women. Black women could not vote. It was not until the civil rights movement in the 60s that we finally got a, a we finally got a voter a voter's right uh, to vote that women the black women were actually able to vote. But when we first got the vote, it was only white women they were able to vote and black men. So it's very very interesting with that. But what's also interesting is since this is Black History Month, it is important I believe to note in light of that taking place you know, to get the right to vote, and that not all suffrages were able to vote, and most of the suffrages were actually white middle-class women, it still means, it still means that black women need to be acknowledged. Although they could not vote, they still were part of the suffrage movement. And there, I want to give you five examples, five women, and I want to honor them. And the first one is Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. She was born in 1825 and made her transition in 1911. Mary Ann Shad Gary, 1823, and made her transition in 1893. Mary Church Terrell, 1863, and made her uh, transition in 1954. Nanny Helen Burroughs, 1879, and made her transition in 19. 
1861. And then, of course, one of my heroes, Ida B. Wells, born 1862 and made her transition in 1931. And that's what we're going to be talking about, Ida B. Wells. And what was so interesting about her, if you watch the movie Iron Jawed Angels, when they were going to have the big parade with the white horse and all the different things that happened, Ida B. Wells came to the meeting and said, you know something? I'm not going to be, they wanted black women to walk in the back of the line. She says, I'm not walking in the back of the line anymore. I'm going to be in the front of the line. And that's exactly what she did. But these five women were very active in getting women the right to vote, that is, white women. And like I said, it wasn't until the civil rights movement in the 1960s that everybody was finally able, you know, they finally said, yeah, everybody has the right to vote. I mean, it's just kind of confusing when you start thinking about it. And, and another thing that really, uh, in, on some levels, I, I have to say, you know, I come from an immigrant family. My family was born, my, mother, my grandmother was born in Russia, and my second grandmother, my father's mother, was born in Poland. And I got to tell you, they had no idea of what happened. They were so busy trying to survive in the United States after escaping pogroms and all the horrors that happened in Europe with Jews that they had no idea to focus what was going on in the United States. They had no idea about the racism and all this other stuff. And when all of a sudden, when I went back to school in 1970 and all of a sudden began to discover what was going on and, and well, even before that, getting involved in the civil rights movement, I was shocked. I said, what? America? This is what they do? I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was because I never learned about it in school. There was no history. Nothing was ever mentioned. So it's kind of interesting when you see what's happening today. And right here in Sonoma County, you know, I was reading the newspaper, racism is still alive and well. And, you know, we really have to start looking at it and start taking, each one of us has got to start taking responsibility. Well, it was not until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a landmark civil rights uh, and labor law in the United States that outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, and sex, and national origin, and that all black women were able to vote. So it wasn't until 1964, so let's say it's almost 40, over 40 years before everybody got the right to vote. And now we're still trying to force their fighting with voting. And, you know, when you start thinking about it, why is there such a hullabaloo around voting? You know why? Because it's important. That's what a democracy is all about. We get to choose our leaders. And it looks like some of the leadership is not happy with some of the choices that we want to make. And so there's more and more pressure put on the media to give not the best information when you start thinking about it. Anyway, it's a lot to think about, and as you can tell, I'm a little bit excited and a little bit nervous with the weather and the changes and the radio station not being on the line, having to stream, you know, all these different things, you know, they kind of, they kind of get to you. But one thing that I realize is that you have to just make up your mind, you know, you have to sit, I'm sitting here talking on the radio, and I'm just going to let go. I'm just going to take a few deep breaths, just let go. Let the great mystery take over. I don't have to worry about anything. You know, I have to tell myself this every single day. Otherwise, you just kind of get off on a whole different tangent. Well, we're going to take a musical break. And, you know, I love this song. It's called Ella's Song, and it's sung by Emily Ebert. And 
I just think, you know, the, the first line is, for those who believe in freedom, we will not give up. And it's so important. It's so important that we all speak out, stand up and speak out. I mean, that's what Women's Spaces is all about. It's like a, a space for women to talk, to explore, and to stand up and not to be afraid to speak out and speak your truth. I know sometimes it's difficult. I know sometimes you get a lot of negative, you know, feedback, etc. But, you know, I think in my black uh, sisters, and I think of what they go through, and I think of what people went through in the in Europe during the Holocaust, and I think of all the wars that are going on, and all the different things that people have to struggle with. And I say to myself, you know, this is simple. It's simple to speak out. It's simple. It really is, and it's so it's so important. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and we're going to be hearing the song, Ella's Song, sung by Emily Everett. And when we return, joining me on the phone, I have my fingers crossed, is Catherine Meeks, Ph.D., a 2022 recipient of the President Joseph R. Biden Lifetime Achievement Award for service. And she is also the executive director of the Osplum Joe, uh, Jones Center for Racial Healing. We'll be talking about two of her books. The most recent one is The Long, The Night is Long, But Light Comes in the Morning, uh, Meditations for Racial Healing. And activist, she, we're going to also talk about activist journalist Ida B. Wells, uh, Passionate for Justice. That's her second book. And I'm just very, very excited about having her on. So go ahead, Ken, let's go ahead and let's play that song and let's get Catherine uh, uh, Meeks on the phone. We hope, believe in freedom cannot important as the killing of a white man, white mother's sons. We who believe we who in believe freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it We hope. 
who believe in freedom we will not rest i'll tell you that is so true anyway um for you just joining i want to remind my listeners the opinions expressed here are not necessarily the opinions of the station its board of directors its members or women's spaces well welcome back you're listening to women's spaces and without further ado i want to introduce my guest joining me on the phone is dr katherine meeks phd a 2022 recipient of the president joseph r biden lifetime achievement reward for service welcome katherine welcome to women's spaces well thank you so much and i'm so honored that you have asked me to come and be uh, your guest today well, I'm glad you're honored. I'm just thrilled to death. <laughs> I mean, your books, your books have, I'm telling you, there was so much going on in Sonoma County that your books, your book on uh, healing racism is so timely. And I'm so glad that we're going to be talking about this. But before we begin, is it okay if I tell my folks, uh, listeners, just a little bit about you? Of course, of course. Dr. Catherine Meeks brings four decades of experience to the work of transforming the dismantling racism work in Atlanta, Georgia. She is the author of six books and one inspirational CD. She's a sought-after teacher and leader. Her latest book is The Night is Long, But Light Comes in the Morning, Meditations on Racial Healing, which I think is so progressive. Meditations on Racial ki- uh, Healing that we can all participate in. And she is the editor of the best-selling book, Living into, into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America, and co-author of Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells, a prophet of our time. This work grows out of her understanding of her call to the uh, vocation of teacher, as well as her realization that all humanity, I love this, Catherine, all humanity is one family which God desires to unite. What a beautiful mm-hmm. thought. She holds yeah. a master's degree in social work from Clark Atlanta University and a Ph.D. from Emory University. Anything you'd like to add, Catherine? I think that's quite enough. <laughs> well, I, I thank you. Go ahead. I thank you. I, I think that's enough. Well, you know, I just want to let my folk, my listeners know that when you go on Women's Spaces, I have a complete biography on you because I think it's well worth reading what you have accomplished and some of the things you have done in your life. Well, let's start. Let's start our conversation is, you know, you are an African-American woman and you, you managed to get yourself become a doctor, a PhD, which is amazing. And, you know, I mean, I know what it's like to go to school myself. And I went back to school in the, in the 70s when women were just re- returning to school. So mm-hmm. talk about your early beginnings, uh, your motivation, and, and what what has inspired you? What has given you that oomph to, to do the work that you are doing? Well, uh, thank you very much, and thank you again for inviting me to be with you and your audience. And I grew up in rural Arkansas, and my father was a, a an unlettered sharecropper, I stopped calling him illiterate because illiteracy means you don't know anything. And just because people can't read or write doesn't mean that they're not smart. My father was very smart, but he was not able to read or write. 
my mother was a school teacher who graduated from college the same year that I graduated from high school. And by watching my mother go all of my life to school, to this place and that place to get a college degree, I understood education to be incredibly important. My father taught me to love the land because he loved the land in spite of the fact that he didn't own any of it and lived on other people's land and worked other people's land. But there was always in me this understanding that came from somewhere that I was to be somebody in the world, that I wasn't just put here to, to suffer and struggle. And so I was, you know, before I even knew the question, I was trying to answer the question, how can I be free? How can I be free? And that question has, has fueled the fire that's pushed me forward toward working on racial issues and going to school and doing most of what I do in life. Well, you know, in reading your books and looking, and we're going to talk a little bit about Ida B. Wells, and then we're going to go into, I just think this whole idea of meditating on racial healing is just absolutely phenomenal and very, very important in the culture today that people relax and start looking inside and see what they can do to help make it a better world. But where, where, you know, where did you get, where did you get your courage and 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 your ability to just stand up and move forward and and all of a sudden come to these conclusions and live your life through that pattern? Well, I, I have a deep faith. I, I have um, since I was a little girl. When I was eight years old, I used to get up and go sit out on the back doorsteps and watch the sun rise and watch the birds wake up and listen to the birds wake up and and talk to God, even though at eight years old, I don't know, you don't know who God is. And I still don't really know who God is, but I kind of know that there, I believe there is one. Uh, I would get up and, and go sit outside and, and do that and, because there was something inside of me that wanted to know and, and to seek after a way to be all right in this world that seemed incredibly frightening in some ways because even though as a kid you don't really know how everything that's true about the the world you live in there was some there was always a lot of fear in my household and in my response to that was to try to find a way not to be overtaken by it but it, as a kid you don't you know I couldn't name all that stuff I just can tell you I can describe what my behavior was now as an adult I understand that I was trying to find a way not to be scared all the time, to find a way to feel better. And as a little girl from from eight years old on, I was always searching, always willing to to turn over the rock to see what was under it, always wondering, always imagining that things could be different, when particularly when things were hard. And it's hard to put a pin on... Where did that all start? I don't exactly know where it all started. I just know that it evolved, and it has gotten stronger and stronger the older that I've gotten. Well, I know I know that feeling. I think the older that we get, the more that we realize is if we don't stand up, if we don't do something, nothing changes. And, right. and, and you know, as, 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 a, as a Caucasian woman, you know, somebody, you know, one of the things, one of the things that was very, very interesting, and I don't remember if it was one of the lines in your book, that oftentimes that white women will migrate towards a black women and, and learn a lot about the culture, but not share, not share with mm-hmm. other 
white women what what is going on and i i just want you to know that my commitment is is that i really i really see the world as one you know as mm -hmm. we are women we are the birthers we bring forward life we do all these different things and we need to stand up together as one <laughs> as one body mm -hmm. and one voice mm -hmm. well you know that mm -hmm. gets me to the next one of my heroes who is Ida B. Wells and yeah. I want to do a, a, a shout out to my dear friend Rosita you know who is the niece of uh, Dr. Polly Murray she was the yeah. one who turned me on to your book and when I first when I got the book I couldn't believe it I said oh this is so exciting because I, I love I just love Ida B. Wells her courage mm -hmm. and what she has done and you know myself being having a journalism major you know and, and my background with the radio and all that, you know, I resonate with her. So I would like you to talk a little bit about her. And then we're, after that, we're going to go on a break. And then I want to really get into your book about, about the racial healing meditations, which I just think is so important for folks to hear. But talk a little bit about uh, uh, Ida B. Wells. Your title of the book is Passionate for Justice. You know, can you give some examples of how Ida B. Wells expressed that? And where do you think that she got her courage? I mean, to me, we're standing on the shoulders of some of these women, and it's just mind-boggling mm -hmm. to think of what they had to go through and the courage they had. Absolutely. And Ida B. Wells is you know, I, I came to know her uh, when I was in college, I mean, in graduate school, but I didn't have time to pursue her very much because you've got to stay focused if you ever want to get out of graduate school. And so when, as a young professor, I decided to teach special topics courses on with, that included Ida B. Wells and, and actually did one class on her uh, by herself. My students used to look at me and say, you know, Dr. Meeks, you remind us of Ida B. Wells. And I would always say, oh, you know, you all are just, your imagination's getting away with you. But but I realize now that, that I channeled her a lot in terms of, I've done a lot of work around lynching and remembering people who were lynched by placing markers in several places in Georgia and also remembering all 800 and something people who were lynched in Georgia. And as I got into that work, I realized my students were right. I really have just uh, embodied that, that kind of energy that Ida B. Wells had around lynching. I think that um, her father, of course, was part of the reason she was the courageous woman she was, but then her mother also, who would go and, and sit in classes where they were, where the children were, so she could learn things. So there was a sense of agency in these people that uh, weren't supposed to have any agency because they were black and poor and not free in this country. And then, you, as you probably remember, and your audience may know, that her parents died within 24 hours of each other in the yellow fever epidemic. And when people talked about par parceling the kids out, the, her brothers and sisters, to other people, she was just horrified. And she took on, at age 16, oh taking God. care of her siblings. And so, you know, that is an amazing thing, to have that sense of agency and to be that courageous. I think that, you know, courage is a funny entity, a funny energy, I should say. I don't know that you have it all when you, at once. I think you get it as you go, and, it's, and it feels like a muscle to me that the more you use it, the stronger it gets. And and, and, the, I, and I think that's what happened with her. And also, the more you use it, the less fearful you get. 
That's right. That's right. The, cur- the, the, strong, the courage gets stronger because you watch yourself survive the risk-taking that you're doing, and you take the risk because not to take it is way more costly than taking it. I mean, that, that in itself is an absolutely perf- excellent point because sometimes in not taking the risk, the, par- the price you pay for silence. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a wonderful song that's sung by a woman by the name of Ellen Burksdale that you might listen to sometime. It's called By My Silence, I Give My Consent. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's so important. You know, mm-hmm. in relation to Ida B. Wells, why, what is so important? Why is it important for her to come forward today? What, what is the message that you think that she's giving, particularly to young women? Well, one of the things I think is she made it clear that she wasn't ever going to say yes to racism or sexism, and she wasn't going to be bamboozled by white women. You know, that she worked for Susan B. Anthony, who didn't understand her, worked with her, not for her, but with her. And and Susan B. Anthony didn't understand at all the plight of black women, even though she was the great abolitionist for uh, against uh, the patriarchy. She didn't understand, and she didn't have the regard for Ida B. Wells as a woman that should have been there, because she she just didn't see her in some ways Ida B was invisible to her and and there's that wonderful uh example of this when when Susan B Anthony is upset because Ida B Wells got married and when she had her son she told her now you have divided duty and Ida B Wells was saying but I needed to have the support of a husband and a family because I don't have that kind of support that Susan B. Anthony had from wherever she got it. And, and, but Susan B. Anthony didn't see that and didn't respect Ida B.'s right to make her own choices. And I think that Ida B. Wells stands as a, a beacon of, a, of, a, of light, bearing witness to the fact that we do need to figure out what choices we want to make, and then we need to make them, and we need to stand in them, and protect them and not let ourselves be dragged into being defined by anybody except our our own understanding of ourselves. I mean, she embodied that in so many ways in terms of the women's issues, in terms of race. And I think that right now in this country, we're suffering from a courage deficit and we need to regain some courage all over the place we need people to be more courageous and she stands as a an amazing example and not this extraordinary superhuman superwoman that was not what she was at all if you when you read her diary she was fickle she wasted money she stated she got in in trouble buying stuff she couldn't afford just like the rest of us you she's a human being <laughs> that's exactly right and i love that i love that because we want to either make we want to make people into being saints or sinners and we're a little bit of both you know and so uh, uh i love that she was just this person i love reading her memphis diary and listening to her lament about by putting this dress on layaway that she now can't afford to get because she doesn't have enough money and how is she going to pay the rent and guys that she liked that didn't like her you know that was so good to put that up against this woman that fought against lynching and stood against white women's racism and 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 came out 
as a victor, not as a victor waving a flag, but as a victor who was standing in uh, with her strength inside of herself, knowing who she was and what she was in the world to do. I think that is the most important thing you can ever do, is discover what you're here for. Well, you know, let's hold that point because we're going to take a musical break. And the, when we come back, we're going to talk about your book, which I think what you're talking about, too, in the, in the name of Ida B. Wells, this, the idea of meditating on, on racial equality, on, on, on freedom for all people. I mean, it's, it, to mm-hmm. me, it's an amazing concept. And the book is called The Night is Long, But Light Comes in the Morning. I love that title, and I look forward to explaining it. And we're going to take a special break now. And the song I'm going to play, Catherine, I want to dedicate to you because in reading, your, in reading the books and reading all that you're saying, I believe that you have this dream about a better world, just like Dr. Mm-hmm. King, that we have a better world for all of us to live in and, and to enjoy, I mean, and take hands. So we're going to play the song. It's called If I Can Dream. It's sung by... Uh, Kina Katrina Jarrock, and when we return, I will continue my conversation with Dr. Catherine Meeks, Ph.D., a 2022 recipient of the President Joseph R. Biden Lifetime Achievement Award for Service and an amazing, an amazing author. So let's go ahead, Ken, let's play that song, If I Can Dream, sung by Karina Karina Jarrock.
God, what a dream. What a big dream we have. Welcome back. You're listening to Women's Spaces, and I'm your host, Elaine B. Holtz, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Catherine Meeks. Welcome back, Dr. Meeks. Thank you. And that song was absolutely beautiful. I, I dedicate it to you, and, and I mean, I, you know, you're not going to believe this, but, you know, the song Elvis, you know, the movie Elvis came out. Mm-hmm. And when he did his special, this this was song was at the time that uh, Bobby Kennedy and he was very upset about what happened with Dr. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And he wanted a song that would relate to that. And this this song was written specially for that special. And when I first heard it, I just I couldn't believe it. That's such a beautiful song. And then to find it by this woman singing it, it's just an amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Women's Spaces. and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Catherine Meeks. And Catherine, you wrote this wonderful book called The Night is Long, But Light Comes in the Morning. And it's all about meditations and about racial healing. And I, I just, I, I, we had talked about questions. And after I really went through the book very intensely, I picked out several chapters that I thought we might be able to talk about. Uh, one, sure. one was on courage, and the other is on love, and then also on facing the pain. But the first thing I'd like you to do is explain what you mean by the night is long, but light comes in the morning. <laughs> Well, you know, the scripture says, uh, weeping, it, it, weeping you, you weep for a while, but joy comes in the morning. And I like to think about the fact that it doesn't say what morning. It just says it comes in the morning, and it will be some morning. And I think that in our country right now, there is a season of darkness, and it is a long night. It's been a long night here around race for, for us as, as Americans. But light does come occasionally, and more than occasionally, when people turn their faces in the direction to search for the light. So I'm hoping that my 48 meditations in this book will lead people, help people, support people who read it to be uh, trusting, number one, that there is light, and that if you keep on pursuing it, you'll find it one of these days and and it, it's a it's a statement it's a statement about hope having hope i don't consider myself optimistic i think optimism is is too small of a word for what we need to embody in these times we need to have hope that in spite of the darkness lights out there and it's just if we keep going if we keep going toward it we'll fi- it will find us we will find it and also, and, and, and also, light has a way of every once in a while you see a little blink of it. You know, it comes through, and you right. you can, you, know, you kind of get excited. Like that's how I felt when I started reading this book. I thought yeah. I thought this is an answer just just to say meditating, just to mm-hmm. just to dedicate it to thinking on racial equality. To begin that mm-hmm. process of, of cleaning out our mind and just listening to the chatter that prevents us from maybe moving forward in that area. Well, one of the chapters, you, let's let's go through this. One of the chapters is you talk about courage. What kind of courage do you mm-hmm. mean? And and well, and do you believe it's needed? Well, how how do you how do people gain that courage? Well, you know. There's a there's a lovely uh, image that was given to me by one of our Episcopal priests, Reverend Barbara Taylor Brown, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. I always get her name turned around um, when she talks about 
having a practice of of courage uh every day or every so often trying to push yourself to do something that requires you to go a little bit further outside of yourself than your comfort zone so her example was perhaps you know in the summer if you walk in tall grass and, and you take a chance that there's a snake or something in that grass but you walk in it anyway one of my examples is if you're a white person who's afraid of communities of color that you drive yourself to the Starbucks in a community of color and go through the to the, through the drive-through and realize that you can do that and nobody's going to harm you you know so you have to practice you have to practice pushing yourself a little beyond what's comfortable my my friend David White who's a poet talks about being a half a shade braver so every day oh if you can just push yourself a little bit more as you wake up a little bit more you see the the more the more consciousness you develop the more capacity you have to act courageously because now you know a little more you you can see a little further and another way to put it is as you catch glimpses of the light you know mm-hmm. as you see the little light flicker you could be more encouraged to keep going toward it but also and, and so that's that's how that's how i see people it's not that you wake up one morning you were not so courageous yesterday and you woke up this morning just bursting with courage no that's not how it happens it's very it's a very process kind of thing well you know we do we do the women's spaces pledge uh we do it the first monday of the month and it goes like my self-esteem does not depend on anything outside of me my self-esteem depends on my relationship with myself and my higher power god whatever you want to call it but it also Mm -hmm. it's that idea of of knowing that it doesn't matter what other people think about you or what what's going on if you see a wrong it's important to stand up for it and i think we're Mm -hmm. the, the big i don't know if you'd agree with this or not but i think the biggest courage is to develop that self-esteem so you're not afraid to walk mm-hmm. into that Starbucks. You realize that mm-hmm. the, you're a human being and there are other human beings and all you want to do is get to know each other. But you have to get to the point that you're willing to take that chance. And I've worked with white people in spaces where there was so much fear because of the narratives that they had constructed their lives around that it took up. It wasn't a matter of I'm going to sit here and tell myself that those are human beings over there because they didn't really believe those were human beings. They were something, and they were something to be afraid of. I mean, that whole process of projecting and making up other in people is a part of what keeps people from having courage and being willing to take a chance. You know, I can't take a chance on you because I've been told you other, and then what am I going to do with that? And, and And somehow I'm going to lose something if I engage with you, well, the truth is you're not going to lose anything, but it's this narrative that you've lived your life by that's kept you bound in this space of being afraid that you've got to break out of. And it does take time. I, I know as a person who's been teaching and doing this work for 50 years that it's not fast. It takes time. It takes time for us to change about anything, actually. Well, I think that's why it's important. Another chapter that I found fascinating and actually difficult, (laughs) very difficult, which is facing the pain. 
you know, mm-hmm. they see not only the pain of who the racist, the person who's who's having the racism put upon them, but the pain of you having to even live in that, you know, live in that state of mind. I mean, everybody's mm-hmm. suffering and they don't see it. So talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that facing the pain, what what you what you meant by that and how important well, that is. So typically one of the things that ends up happening in in our country is that white people think that when they start waking up that racism is about wounded people of color, particularly black people, but other people of color as well. And and so it's we who are wounded, and they have no wounds. Well, the truth is racism has wounded us all right. to start with. Everybody, everybody who lives here has been wounded in some way or another by this, this systemic oppression. So... Naming that, figuring out how that, what that wound looks like in you is the first step toward healing, that you've got to be willing to sit with yourself and say, you know, I've limited myself from reading these books or understanding this music or eating these foods or going into this neighborhood because I'm afraid, because I've been told that there's danger in those things and I'm learning that that's not true. And now I want to do something about it. So facing up, naming, you know, James Baldwin says that you can't fix everything you can name, but you won't fix anything that you don't name. You know, so you can name a lot of stuff, but if and you can't fix it all. But if you don't name it, you're not going to fix any of it. And we we are really well, good at naming the things in the wrong way. And uh, well, one of the stories in my in this book is about this fellow who lost his key and he's looking for the key outdoors in the yard. And his friends ask him, where did he lose the key? He can't find it. And they ask him, where did he lose it? And he says, I lost it in the house, but the light's better out here. (laughs) So we're bad about looking for answers in the wrong places. You know, we, we don't want to name things. We want to keep, we want to keep naming it something that's not what it is. And we like now, you know, we find ourselves in a space where people think they're naming their wounds by saying, well, we need to get rid of stuff that, that makes our children feel bad, history. Oh. Well, that's ridiculous. You can't just write history the way you want it to be. It already happened. You know, so if you don't tell the truth about it, you're just uh, really living in an illusion. And you can't get well. You can't do well. You can't even be really courageous living in an illusion. Well, you know, because there's something in you that knows it's not true, you know. You know, one of the things as I listen to you and as I go through this, we're going to have to do another interview. I mean, <laughs> we barely we barely touched the surface, Catherine. I'm sorry, but this is this is well, so this is so exciting to me because this is this is what we need to do. We need to put it on the table. We need to look at our pain. We look at look, to look at all of us are suffering. And 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 you know, we're right. suffering on so many levels we don't even know it. But you know, I'm looking at the clock and we're coming to the end of the segment the end of the show and i want to get to these these few things very important first of all what is the message of what is the strongest message of your book who do you believe should read the book Mm -hmm. and what is your you know what is your hope Mm -hmm. well i think the core message is first of all the job the responsibility the project that every single one of us black white brown whatever color 
whatever gender, whatever sexual orientation, whatever, the core responsibility, the core project is to be as good a human as we can be, to, to try to figure out why we were put here in the first place and what we're supposed to be doing. And racial, racial healing is a part of that project. So this book is, is, is given as a contribution to not only healing around race, but healing in general. And I want people to ask themselves the question, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? And if you say yes, then what are you willing to do to get well? And if you say you want to be well, you've got to be willing to do whatever the work is that needs to be done in order to be well. So that's the message. That's the core message. I don't think that racism is ever going to be ever going to be completely deconstructed and dismantled in this country until we, as human beings, become more well and become less tolerant of systems of oppression. I mean, it's working for a whole lot of folks, and we want to. And, and there's a desire to keep the status quo as it is, and that's why it stays so strong. Well, I, want I think to, in, I anybody want, anybody who's interested in being well should read this book. And I want you to know, Doctor Meeks, I I just love you. I love what you're bringing forward. I love what you're saying, and I I hope people are listening and understand how important how important this is. You know, I always say our children are the future. We must never lose sight of that. If we don't settle this, we're not giving them a very good future. So if quickly, if you could give us your website really quickly. and Yes, I can. Very quickly. It's centerforracialhealing.org and cmeeks at episcopalatlanta.org. That's my email address. And I would be delighted to have anybody follow up with me or follow, go visit our website, follow up with me if you want to have more of a conversation. Well, I'm going to have more of a conversation with you, so I'm going to put you on the spot. I hope that we can do a second interview because we barely touched the surface. And I want to I would be honored and delighted to do that, Elaine. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Meek. That absolutely has been wonderful. Well, folks, that's fit for our show. Special thank you to Dr. Catherine Meeks, Ph.D., a 2022 recipient, oh, my goodness, of the President Joseph R. Biden Lifetime Achievement Award for Service, and she's also the executive director of the Ashlam Jones Center for Racial Healing. I want to remind everybody, like I say every week, our children are their future. It is important to get involved. The very least we can do is make sure that we speak out when we see that there is any kind of racial or any kind of harm that's being done in that area. Well, this is Elaine B. Holtz. You've been listening to Women's Spaces. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to being with you the next time. She's trying to come through A woman's voice with messages A woman's feelings Oh, a woman in your life She can feel so easily She knows everything you do Because the woman in your life is you And who is sure
she's patient and she's waiting and she'll take you home now the woman in your life she can The previous Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, February 27th, 2023.